Well, as you know, uh, by now, if you've been with us, we've been looking at the prophet Micah, and we did two sermons on uh, what has grieved God, and we talked about uh, security becoming complacency, we, talking to, we talked about worship becoming idolatry, then I talked about, well, two on, what will God do? What does God promise to do? And one of the things that God promises is a better future than you have right now. And the second thing that God promises, uh, we looked at last week, was he promises you a better leader. Um, And ultimately, we looked at how that was fulfilled in Jesus and through Jesus to Pentecost. And so we start the final two, uh, this week and next week, on, well, what does God ask of us? What does God want us to do? And uh, that's where we're kind of going to, that's where Micah, it's not where we, but it's where Micah takes uh, his readers to say, this is what God wants of you. This week, uh, there's been all sorts of things going on, obviously, in the news, but one of the things that happened at the beginning of the week was the beginning of a conversation, or perhaps it's the middle point of a conversation, about where we're up to with schools in our country. And you'll know what's been going on in Birmingham and some of the, the things that have come through about the fears about faith schools. And Michael Gove, the education uh, secretary, began to talk about this idea that all schools must promote British values. An interesting phrase. What does it mean to be British? Well, one of the things it probably means is that we wait up till one o'clock and we see our team lose. What does it mean to be British? And I think this will be actually a serious conversation that will have to take place over the next period. What does it mean? What sort of nation do we become? I'm going to just show this is not serious, the next bit is, but very British problems. So so you won't be able to read this. But a very British problem is, honestly, it doesn't matter, which means nothing has ever mattered more than this. That's what it means to be British. Uh, someone not hearing you when you say hello, so you just abandon any pl- uh, plan of further conversation. I think we've done that. Expressing your furious anger by narrowing your eyes slightly. Very British. The me- various meanings of I beg your pardon can mean I didn't hear you, can mean I apologise, or can mean what you're saying is making me absolutely livid. What does it mean to be British? And then finally, pop round any time which being translated means, please stay away from my house. (laughs) The idea of, what does it mean? And that's kind of someone just messing about, really. But that idea, I think, will come back. And maybe in September, depending on what happens in Scotland, it will come to the fore again. What does it mean to be a people? In one sense, what Micah's doing, all the way through the book, He's, he's wanting to ask that question of the people of God. What does it mean to be the people of God? And it's easy, isn't it, to lose track of who you are. And what Micah and the prophets throughout the Bible are doing are coming back to this idea of, I need to call you back to be who you are. And for the people of God, you are who you are because God's done something. Uh, you may not remember, but I did say this, that one of the things that Micah does and one of the things the prophets do is they kind of have to get your attention. Because by definition, everybody sort of thinking, well, it is what it is. It's kind of like we're doing okay. 
And the prophets come along and they have to grab you. So they grab you with the language they use or with the pictures they paint. And we're going to read something where Micah wants to grab you again and grab the people of God. So this is how he does it. He says in chapter 6, listen to what the Lord says. Okay, so this is like Micah saying, this is what God's speaking. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. It's like God's in court and God says, I'm going to appeal to the hills, the ancient hills. Let's hear what they have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. So you're in that sort of courtroom scene, and God comes in as a prosecutor and says, I've got a case against you. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So what God does, God takes them back and says, do you remember all the stuff I've done? And he makes that heart plea. Why? What have I done to you? Why have you rejected me? Why have you not bothered with me? And in verse 6, you get the response from the people. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn, my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And Micah speaks back to them and says, no. He has shown you, all you people, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So that's the picture. It's a courtroom scene. And he says, people, what you've done is you've dropped out. You have forgotten not only who you are, but you've forgotten what I've done for you. How, how can you forget your own history? How can you forget what God's done? Well, there's probably not one of us sitting in the room today who doesn't know exactly how you forget that. You just trundle along. And Micah comes to the people and says, you've forgotten your own history. You've forgotten where you were. You've forgotten what you were like. You've forgotten what I've done. And so the people come and they go, well, what can we do for God then? And you get that escalation in verse 6. Shall I come with him with burnt offerings? That's where it begins. Or with calves that are a year old. He's talking about bringing stuff into the temple. 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? It's kind of like escalating. Or with 10,000 rivers of oil? And then finally, what if I brought my firstborn? This is kind of like ridiculous, extravagant. What does God want? And the prophets always say, God is not really that bothered or impressed. That's a better word. He's not that impressed with all your big sacrifices. God's far more concerned about how you live. Far more concerned. Now, we don't live in temple systems, but it's kind of like, does God want me to be there at church every time the door open? Does God want me to do this? Does God want me to do that? Does God want me No, 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 no. God's really much more concerned about how you live. He's shown you, all you people, what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. It's like, these are three aspects of the triangle that hold together. It's not three different things, it's three things that hold together really well. The two at the bottom, the act justly and love mercy, those words underneath it are just the Hebrew words, uh, mishpat. And, and the, the idea of that word is a rich word in the Old Testament. It comes back time and time again because partly it reflects who God is. Act justly. That's why stuff like that, that talk about the human trafficking, is actually a cause that Christians cannot go, well, I know it happens, but I don't really want to think about it. You can't, we can't. Because actually, if we do that, we're, what we're saying is, well, this doesn't really affect me, so let's, let's just be in a corner. I don't want to think about the bad stuff. On Tuesday, I was reading the, the Evening Standard in London, and they were talking about, it was the, the day that uh, Angelina Jolie um, had come out and said, we will, we will not give up on, on rape as war crimes. And, and the London Evening Standard had done a, a parallel piece to say it's not only over there in the Congo, it's in London. This is how teenagers and young people deal with one another. And your heart breaks. And what does it mean? And, and there are loads of Christians in London who are going, we're going to work with the gangs. We're not going to give up. We're going to act justly because we cannot give up on this generation. And there are lots of them. But, but those are the big things of life. And in a sense, they're sort of like the obvious things. But what about for you? And for me, sometimes in, in, our, in our culture, it's like, what can you get away with? What can you do that'll just cut the corners and you win? And God says, no, I want you to act justly. I want you to act with righteousness. I want you to be right. It's not about winning. It's actually about doing justice. It's dealing with people well. And so on and so forth. And then love mercy. And that word 
is a really, really rich word. If there's one word that kind of runs through the Old Testament from beginning to end that describes God, it's that word, hesed. It's that word of a covenant God who says, I'm so committed to you that I won't break my love and my covenant with you. It's a difficult word for English to, to translate because it's too rich, really. But it can mean, it's translated in your Bible sometimes as loving kindness, which sounds a bit weak to our ears. But it's that sort of connectedness that says, I'll never let you go. And here, Micah says, I want you to love that word, mercy. I want you to be generous with people. I want you to be gracious with them. I want you to be loyal to them. And in a sense, what Micah is saying is, I want you to reflect your Father, your Heavenly Father. I want you to be like me. And then that third, at the top of that triangle, is walk humbly with God. And together, they present a way of living with shalom, with peace. Again, it's another Hebrew word. And the only reason I use these words is because they're rich words. It's kind of like the bedrock words of the Old Testament. How do you recreate communities? How do you recreate life? How do we model something that is so much better? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. I want to just take a moment to think about that walking humbly. What does it mean? Well, one of the things it means is that you practice the presence of God. You practice the presence of God. Um, some of us are reading the book this week by Tim Keller called um, um, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, or in brackets, amnesia for certain people. Um, and uh, he makes a point in the middle of the book, which is really interesting. I mean, it's just a simple point, but he talks about this idea that in the Bible, often it talks about you walking with God and God walking with you. And it's this idea of you just doing the daily, ongoing trudge of life. Not racing ahead, not rushing, but this idea of just walking every day, the ordinary stuff, the simple stuff. And it's in the midst of the simple stuff that we learn to practice the presence of God. That God actually accompanies us. Walk humbly with God. It's things like, okay, well, I, I, listen, I'm, I'm not setting myself up here, but um, these are some of the ways I try and do it, all right? So if I've got little um, places I go to regularly, so because of where my office is, get off the tube, or I walk from the station, and uh, I, ages ago I decided that what I would do is I would look for signposts along the way that re remind me of God being with me. So I've got little things that I found on my 20-minute walk from the station to where I work that are just reminders, and it's, it, it doesn't matter what they are, it just reminds me, and it's almost like a little prayer walk that I pray, uh, that I walk before I get into my own office. Because I want to remind myself that I'm walking, that I'm walking with God, but more particularly that God's walking with me. It's not that easy when my, I'm working from home because my office is just in the 
back bedroom. So, <laughs> but when I work in the office in London, it's easier. And it could be things like that. I know some people who, when they log on, their screensaver is a reminder of something about the fact that God, this is a day that is God's, and it's a day they're going to live with God. Sometimes when I'm walking around on my own, I'll just pray random prayers for people I'm seeing. And sometimes I try and, I, I don't know if this actually works, but I do watch out for it, just to see if they turn around and smile. I just pray a blessing on them as they go. And sometimes they do, and I think, oh, well, maybe. And um, I just, it's just this idea, and it sounds simplistic, and it sounds a little strange and a little weird. But it helps me because my head can be so full of other stuff that I kind of end up with a nodding acquaintance to God, and I want to walk with God at three miles an hour, which is the pace we walk. I wonder what it would look like for you. But what does it mean to walk humbly? And I find these challenging to myself. I think part of walking humbly, and I'm not going to say everything about this, but just some headlines for myself when I was thinking about this. What does it mean to be humble? Firstly, listen. Listen to people. You've not heard everything. <laughs> and sometimes we can be so in a rush or we can be so dismissive that actually we've stopped listening. Because we think, we've, we think, print bluntly, we think we know it all. There's nothing left to hear. Listen. You've not heard everything. Secondly, learn. You don't understand everything. Learn. The stuff that's happening that others could teach you. But it's kind of like saying, I'm, I want to learn, I want to grow. Perhaps particularly for those of us who, as you get older, there can be a point at which you go, I'm not really going to learn anything new now. But actually to open yourself up and say, I'm gonna, I, I, I need to keep growing. I'm going to learn. Lower. You don't need to be in control. You don't need to be in control. And for some of us, that's a big deal, isn't it? Sometimes it's okay to be the one that goes, I don't really know what's happening around here, but I'm not in control. And I'm actually quite happy about that. And we all struggle with it, I think, to an extent. It's one of those things that it's really easy to identify in other people. It's really hard to see it in yourself. And when other people say it of you, you get really defensive. I'm saying you. Clearly, that's not my case at all, but... It, you know. Lower, you don't need to be in control. I want to learn to walk humbly. My final L was laugh. Don't take yourself so seriously. What does it mean to walk humbly with God? This everyday walk. And for some of you, tomorrow morning, you'll be in offices and workspaces, and you'll get loads of opportunity to practice humility. And it's like, what's the, what's the setting in your own heart and soul as you go there? Some of you with family, some of you are in your, in your neighbourhood. How are you approaching people? Are these brilliant opportunities for you to actually not only learn and listen and grow, and, 
recognize that you don't need to be in control, but is it also a point at which you find God is able to be closer to you? Final slide. What's it mean for us? And what's it mean for us this morning? When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said this. If you've had any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you've had any comfort from his love, if you've had any common sharing in the Spirit, if you've received any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Have you received anything from Christ? Has God done anything? And you would say, yes, he has. Well then, in your relationships with one another, follow Jesus. Be like Jesus, who didn't take the primary place but took the lower place. Who actually took, lowered himself. He didn't want to be in control in that sense, but allowed God to work through him. And then just in case people were going, yeah, but that sounds great in practice, Paul nails it by saying, so whatever you do, do it without grumbling. <laughs> and it's like, oh, we get that bit. Do it without grumbling and do it without arguing, not only here, but in your everyday life. Because then you will shine like stars in the darkness. What does it mean to walk humbly with God? What does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be the people of God when there's a lot of darkness around us? God's told you what he wants of you. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God.
we're going to pray together. And um, if you can, if you can stand, then let's stand. If you can't, that's okay. Lord, we hear Micah speak to the people of God to say to them, be who I've created you to be. And we hear your spirit saying to us this morning, be who I've created you to be. And Lord, it's easy for us to forget where we've come from. And it's easy for us to forget what we carry. Lord, may we be people who do indeed act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. Lord, teach us to do it, we pray. Because we don't find it easy, and so, we, uh, so often it's easy for us just to blend in with the rest of our culture. Lord, may we, as a local church, demonstrate something different. Lord, help us not to grumble as much. Help us not to be contentious and argue. Lord, help us to shine like stars in the darkness. And Lord, we pray for the church around the world. We pray for those churches that are in contexts that we would never imagine, we cannot imagine. But Lord, for those people who are called by your name, who are seeking to do exactly the same, Lord, may we have a sense of that global family of God. And may we be part of it, we pray. We ask this in your name and we look to see how you might use us for your kingdom and for your glory. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.